back on my junior high and high school years, um, truly some of my fondest memories were, were uh, in quizzing. Uh, it was just this awesome combination, I thought, of, uh, of fun and competition and spiritual benefit all rolled into one incredible program. So I, I give it my Pastor Aaron two thumbs up and would just say, give it a go. If you haven't done it before, give it a go. It, uh, it, it, was, it was great and continues to pay dividends today. I'll tell you, there's still, um, still passages that I know I learned in quizzing. I know that's where I memorized them that still easily come back to memory today. And it's more and more years ago now, but uh, are still, still there with, with clarity. So. Um, so, so we're continuing in our uh, sermon series this summer, and uh, I'll just shoot straight with you. We're, uh, we're in a stretch of topics that aren't all that joyful or uplifting uh, at the moment. So last week we did our, our profile on Satan. Um, next week we're going to talk about temptation, and, and today is that glorious topic of sin. So, uh, you know, these three weeks, they, they are what they are. It's a tough stretch, but they're topics that, uh, that do need to be discussed. Uh, they just do. There's, there's real implications in our lives. Um, they're worth our time and energy, exploring how they first appear in Genesis and then, and then continue to be developed throughout the Bible. Um, now, the first thing I wanted to do this morning uh, in, in this discussion on sin is set the foundation regarding what sin is and why it even exists, why it's even a topic. Uh, not only would many in our society today uh, disagree about what is and isn't sin, but a survey a few years ago found that uh, 10% of respondents say that sin doesn't even exist, so that we shouldn't even have this conversation about what would and wouldn't be considered sin. And, uh, and that number is probably rising. Um, as I say, it was a survey from a few years back, but, but uh, the percentage of those under 45 years old who held such a view was double that of those over 45 years old. So that 10% number has probably climbed a bit. So when we talk about sin, we, we have to be clear that sin isn't just something that is bad or wrong based upon our own standards or, or the standards of those around us or, or even the laws of the country in which we reside. Um, sin is something different from that. Sin, sin is a transgression against or, or it is a, a failure to conform to God's moral law. That, that is what is presented to us in Scripture. And, and perhaps many of us have been, have been taught at some time that, that to sin is to miss the mark. Has anybody heard that one before? Kind of going back to what the word sin means. Am I the only one? Okay. <laughs> to sin is to miss the mark. And, and I, think, I think that's a good way to think about it. So long as the mark is the unchanging, perfect moral law of God. If that is not the mark, then that definition really doesn't hold a lot of water. So to sin is to, to miss the mark, this unchanging, perfect moral law of God. But, but rather than stop there, I want to go somewhere deeper than that this morning, uh, maybe another layer deeper. Because when we talk about the origin of sin, 
or the basis of sin. Uh, we need to, or maybe we are asking the question, what makes God's moral law the mark? Why is that the mark to which things are, are measured? And, and this is a question that we don't just ask today, this is a question that has been asked for millennia. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we can incorrectly assume that, that the questions we are asking today are unique to us, that we've somehow progressed to this place where we're asking deeper questions than those who've lived before us. And, and you know, when we wrestle with a situation, we can forget that people all throughout history all throughout history, even though they live, might have lived in a different time and place, that, that they have wrestled with these same things. So when it comes to this discussion this morning, you, we can go back to around the year 400 B.C. So we're going way back. Around 400 B.C., Plato wrote uh, something. He wrote a dialogue called Euthyphro. And in this dialogue, Socrates asks Euthyphro a question that, that has come to be known as Euthyphro's Dilemma. And if that sounds familiar and you were in adult Sunday school class a while back, we kind of dove into this a little bit. Um, the question is essentially this. Does God command something because it is good or is something good because God has commanded it? So, so let's let that marinate just a little bit in our minds. Is, is, uh, does God command something because it is good, or is that something good because God has commanded it? We, we can maybe put it another way so it's not quite so abstract. Does God command people not to murder because murder is in and of itself evil, or is murder evil because God has commanded us not to do it. Uh, we're kind of tracking here, it's kind of the chicken and the egg type situation, right? Like which one came first? So, so if we say that God commands us to do something because that thing is good, then we're making the basis for good something outside of God. So, so in other words, the moral law that we're talking about is separate from God, and he commands us to follow it because it is good. So if that's the case, if good is separated from God, then now all of a sudden, God is not the almighty God with whom there is no compare, like we talked about last week. And so when we think about that view, it's really not compatible with the truth of God presented in Scripture. Good cannot be something separated from God because now all of a sudden you could argue it's above him. And so he's just following in line with that good. So, so we can't really hold that view, but if, but if we say that something, well, that, that thing is good because God has commanded us to do it, that's what makes it good. We kind of run into an issue there where God could have commanded anything and made it good, right? I, I mean... God would only need to give us a new command and what was once good now becomes evil and what was once evil now becomes good just simply because he has made a new command for us. And it's really, it's really a very arbitrary view of good when you think about it. So there's, that's called the Euthyphro Dilemma because either way you kind of run into issues from a divine point of view. What the Bible presents to us is a third option. The Bible would say, no, it's not, that's not a dilemma at all. It's just not viewing things according to how they are. 
The third option that the Bible presents is that God commands something because he, he himself is good. That's why he commands it. He is good. His commands are grounded in and line up with his character. And you see this in scripture, lots of different places. You see it where both God and his commands are described with the same terms. So, so for example, uh, uh, Psalm 145, verse 17, says that the Lord is righteous in all his ways. The Lord is righteous, God himself. But you can also read in Psalm 119, 172, that, the, that uh, all your commandments are righteous. So God is righteous and his commandments are righteous as well. His commandments are righteous because he is righteous. But it's not just righteousness. Uh, Psalm 31 refers to God as the God of truth. Psalm 119 says that God's law is truth. Uh, Leviticus 11, God says, be holy for I am holy. And we read in Romans 7, uh, Paul writes that the law is holy, the commandment is holy. Uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says that the Father in heaven is perfect. Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect. So what we see in scripture is that that, uh, based upon those descriptions, the perfect moral law of God flows from himself. It's not something that he just made up. It's not something that exists outside of himself. It flows from himself. Something is good not just because it aligns to God's moral law, but because it aligns with God himself. And then the flip side of that, something is evil, not just because it goes against God's moral law, but because it goes against God himself. It is all grounded in God's character. And that's, that's important to understand when we think about uh, sin. So looking at Genesis, the statement that God spoke to Adam in Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17, about not eating from, uh, about being able to eat in any, from any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that wasn't just a simple command. It, it was a statement which aligned with the very character of God himself. So he would not have spoken that if it didn't flow from his goodness. It's not some arbitrary rule that God just made up. It flowed from himself. So for Adam and Eve to disobey that command is about more than just simply breaking a rule. And, and, and I think that is often how sin can be viewed, breaking God's rules. And we kind of stop there. And while sin is missing the mark, like we, like we said earlier, I don't think that understanding alone carries the true weight associated with sin. If all we're doing is saying, well, we broke one of God's rules, there, there is more to it than that. There's something much deeper going on there. And so as I was thinking about this, uh, my mind went to um, my brother-in-law, Jacob. If he pulls someone over for speeding and he writes them a ticket because they've broken the law, my hunch is that he's not taking that offense personally, right? I mean, he didn't write that law. He didn't lobby for the law. He didn't vote to enact the law. He, he, in his profession, is just simply charged with enforcing the law. I think we 
I think we incorrectly downplay the seriousness of sin if we only view God as the divine law enforcer, that once we break a rule, his judgment comes upon us, that we've broken, broken the law. You know, if I can kind of shift analogies a bit here, the Bible does refer to God as the judge, but we shouldn't think of him as a judge who is completely removed emotionally and relationally and just kind of makes his ruling from on high. What the Bible presents to us is is a picture of God as judge, but also as victim. I know that kind of sounds interesting, but the Bible presents God as as a victim, in a sense, of our sins. So what we see in the Bible, there are some some sobering and, and humbling and, if I'm honest, fearful statements regarding sin. Statements that really show the impact on God himself. So, for example, in Genesis 6, uh, right, right as we're getting into the story of the flood, what we see is that the rampant sin spread across the world grieved God's heart. That's how it's described. It grieved God's heart. It's not just that people were breaking the rules. They were grieving God himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, at the end of the account of David and Bathsheba, we're told that the things David had done displeased the Lord. So not that he just broke commandment, but, but displeased God. Uh, Psalm 95, we're told that God was grieved by the generation of Israelites in the wilderness who were not faithful to him. In Ezekiel 6, God said that he is broken, he's grieved over the people's adulterous hearts that have lusted after idols. Isaiah 43, the sins of God's people are said to be a burden to him. Uh, Isaiah said in chapter 63 that God's people have rebelled against him and grieved the Holy Spirit. Um, That phrase is used by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He, He had just given this whole string of commands urging people not to sin, and he says to do so is to grieve the Holy Spirit. It is, I think it's humbling to, to think that our sins have such a personal impact on the Almighty God. Again, he's not just this divine judge that you know, gives his ruling. He's the victim in it. He, he is impacted by those, by those actions. And, and when we think about his love for us, it probably shouldn't surprise us. I think we recognize that it's those who are the closest to us who are able to most deeply hurt us. And I think because God loves us as he does, there is that vulnerability, uh, that, that maybe that's not the right word to use with God being vulnerable, but he opens himself up to, to being grieved, to being burdened when we, when we sin in a way that's, that's not according to his character, as we talked about. Man, I, we've wronged God. I mean, that's what it comes down to. We've wronged him. He has a legitimate case against us, if we can use that courtroom setting. Um, it's, a, it's a sobering thought. It's a humbling thought. But, but again, there's some fear there, too, because in the midst of this realization, we can't forget that sin is serious because God is also the judge. He is the judge. And some of those passages that I just referenced speak to that side of things as well. So when, when God spoke of being grieved by the wilderness generation in Psalm 95, he also said that his wrath would preclude them from entering the promised land. 
So he's grieved personally, but yet he is still functioning as judge as well. And so they will, in their guilt, not enter the promised land, that generation. Uh, in Psalm, or excuse me, in Isaiah 63, God said that he's grieved by the people and also that he turned to fight against them as their enemy. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter six, although God is brokenhearted over his people, he also tells them that sword and famine and pestilence are coming. And, and really, maybe the ultimate picture of God as judge is seen in Revelation chapter 20. We have the great white throne and, and all people standing before God to give account for their lives. Now, praise God, praise God that in Jesus our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, if we can stay in Revelation 20. I mean, we praise God that that we are forgiven because of God's grace and because of God's mercy shown to us. And we're gonna end there this morning. I think we have to end there because this is incredibly depressing if we don't end there. But even when considering the, the blessing of that, the, the blessing of forgiveness through Jesus' work on the cross, we have to still hold on to the seriousness of sin. We can't forget that can't downplay the judgment of God just because we've been forgiven through Jesus. We we can't forget the punishment upon sin just because our punishment has been taken upon Jesus himself. Uh, That's why in Romans 6, when Paul, you know, rhetorically asks, well, should we just go on sinning because we've been given grace? You know, we're forgiven, we're we're free, so we just do whatever we want? And, And the rhetorical answer is, well, he gives the answer, by no means. No, we can't forget what sin is and the consequences of that and how it burdens God in his heart. No, no, we should not keep on sinning. Uh, Paul gives a list of sins in Colossians chapter three, and then he, write, he writes then that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I mean, I don't like to talk about wrath. I don't like to think about God's wrath. I mean, that, that is a fearful thing. But we can't remove the tie between sin and God's wrath because if we do, then we, we seriously downgrade what sin is. We downgrade the seriousness of sin. It is a serious thing. I mean, what, what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, it, it wasn't them being true to themselves, if I can take a contemporary phrase and use it. That's not what is going on in Genesis two and three. It was mankind rejecting God and setting themselves in opposition to God's character and to God's purposes. That's what they were doing. They sought to rule over themselves rather than be ruled by their creator. And um, that attitude, kind of sorry to say, did not stop with them. That attitude did not die out with Adam and Eve it's been passed down to each and every human being between then and now. Every person, the pervasiveness of sin within the human race, I think is unmistakable. We can't miss it, I mean, uh, and it's this pervasiveness that Paul talks about in Romans chapter five, and I want to read Paul's words there, and I'd encourage you to turn there with me if you wanna follow along. Romans 5 just so perfectly 
explains to us the results of Adam's sin for all who would come after him. So Romans chapter five, um, starting in verse 12, it says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So if I can summarize those words there, that there was one man who initially sinned once in the Garden of Eden, but through him sin has spread to everyone. Uh, we're all born as corrupt people with a corrupt nature into a corrupt world. That's been the reality since Genesis chapter three. Uh, and even before the Old, Testam Old Testament law was given to Moses, mankind has been setting itself up against God and God's moral law. We are, we're by nature children of wrath, as, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2. We're, we're fundamentally predisposed to rebel against God. And, and, and Paul goes on, as he continues in Romans, he, he makes this quite evident personally in Romans chapter seven. He talks about how he doesn't do what he wants to do, but instead he does what he hates. He talks about sin dwelling within him and affecting him. He talks about not being able to do the good and only being able to do the evil. Uh, he talks about this war being waged within him that, that, that makes him captive to the law of sin. Uh, he describes himself as wretched and needing deliverance. Those are not the words of a person who is inherently good and without a corrupt nature. You cannot read those words and come away with, with that understanding. And because you and I can read Paul's words and not along with him in agreement, based on our own experiences, uh, we know that we too have that same corrupt nature that Paul's talking about. That same nature that has been passed down from Adam to generation after generation after generation. I mean, Paul would write to Titus, he would say that our minds and our consciences are defiled. Um, Jeremiah famously stated that, that our hearts are deceitful above all things. And there's the belief in our society today, isn't there, that, that people are inherently good and, and it's only their upbringing or, or maybe it's their education or maybe it's just the context in which they live that corrupts them. That we're born good and then everything around us kind of makes us evil. Um, if we get, so as a result then, well, if I, we can just change the laws or if we can just mandate certain things be taught, if we can have a better education or if we can just get enough people in society to act a certain way, then, then the goodness of mankind will win out and it will overpower evil. I mean, that, that is the foundation from which some people will function. But it's just not reality. It's just not, it is, the Bible never leads us to believe anything even close to that. We are born corrupt, all creation, all mankind has been corrupted by sin. Bible's so clear on that. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, 
we see that in our own experience. We, we, we know that to be true. We might not like it, and so we might deny it because we don't like it, but, but we see that it's true. We know us. We know the sin that is within us. It doesn't mean that we, we, we never have moments where we show kindness or mercy or selflessness or, or things like that, even those who aren't new creations in Christ, right? But, but it does mean that we've inherited a corrupt nature that is broken and needs to be fixed regardless of any flashes of good in our lives that, that we might have. And it might, it might be tempting just to ignore that brokenness in our lives and, and, and just live in a way that seeks to increase and maximize the good. You know, it can be tempting to say, okay, well, I'm broken, I'm just gonna do the best with what I've got and try to live out the best life that I can. It can be a tempting to assume that if we just increase the good and decrease the bad, that things will turn out okay, that we'll be all right. The problem is that things don't work that way. That's, that's not reality either. Um, there are some real results of sin that we are faced with, no matter how much good we might do. And Genesis chapters two and three highlight two of those results specifically. Uh, one of them we talked about a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks now uh, it's been, I guess. We talked about death. And uh, before sin, before sin in Genesis chapter two, God warned that death would be a result of sin. And after sin, Paul, is, when he's writing many years later, after sin has been introduced to the world, he reflected on the situation and he noted that the wages of sin, the, the result of sin, is death. Paul is echoing God. He's saying, yes, what God said is true, that that, result would, that that would be a result of sin. Yes, we see that. But it's not just death that's talked about in these opening chapters of Genesis. We get another result as well. And so I wanted to read Genesis chapter three. This is verses seven and eight. And so this is immediately after Adam and Eve sinned for the first time. It says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So we see another result of sin there. Death has already been talked about, but, but in sinning for the first time, Adam and Eve felt shame. They felt shame. They felt shame before God. That's why they hid when they heard God coming. But they also felt shame among themselves, between themselves. That's why they made clothes for themselves. They felt shame. And I... It's tough, it's tough to read this story because we know this is the point at which everything went wrong. We look at what's going on around us and, and we know it, it all stems from this. Right? We can look at the incredible pain and, and brokenness and struggle in our world. We can think about Afghanistan, for instance, and what's going on there and we can trace it all right back to Genesis chapter three. And I, man, I, I feel sorrow for Adam and Eve thinking about what it must have been like when they came to that awful realization of what they had just done. I mean, we know they felt shame 
individually based upon what they were experiencing. They felt shame in themselves, they felt shame with their relationship with God. But I wonder if they even felt shame knowing they'd messed it up for all of creation. And I'm not trying to let ourselves off the hook here, but man, if they didn't understand then the, the full ramifications of that first sin, I think they probably came to understand it. We know Adam lived 930 years. That's long enough to see what happened. I wonder if they felt shame about that too, thinking, man, it goes back to me. It goes back to my decision that I made back in the Garden of Eden. I, I just wonder about that. Sin has real results attached to it. There is just no question about it. The results were real then. Adam and Eve found that out. But they're real now. They're, they're just as real today as they were back in Genesis chapter 3. And along with that, sin is an enemy that is formidable. Those results of sin make it an enemy in our lives. It is an enemy that is formidable, it is relentless, but it is an enemy that does not have to be victorious. We can start talking about the good news now. Uh, Let's go back to, uh, to Paul's reflection in Romans chapter five. And uh, you know, he's just talked about the pervasiveness of sin But let's see what he also has to say about victory over sin. So if we pick it up in chapter five, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So again, we're... We all commit sin. We're all guilty as individuals. I'm not trying to deny that or look past that in any way. But it can all be traced back to Eden. One person, as Paul writes, brought sin and death into the world. Death reigns because of the first man, Adam. Life reigns, however, through the other man, Jesus Christ. That, That is the good news in all of this. When our corrupt nature leads us toward sin and it leads us away from God, we have to cling to that other man. We have to cling to Jesus and his free gift of grace that Paul talks about here. Uh, if we don't, we're led to judgment and, and we're led to death. If, if we do, if we are clinging to this free gift of grace, it leads to righteousness and life as Paul talks about there. Sin does not have to be victorious. There's hope. There's victory for us in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's that's the only way we can stand up here and say anything good about this whole situation that we are in in this corrupt world. 
And you know, it's, it, it, it's one thing to, to gather here on a Sunday morning and, and agree together that sin is an affront to God's character and that it leads to death and that it leads to shame and we can talk about other results as well. It's another thing to face real temptation in our lives and battle against that strong draw toward sin. And, and, and we're gonna specifically talk about that next week. We'll get into temptation next week, as I said. Um, but, but for now, for now, we, we can allow the reality of sin and the seriousness of sin to take us to a place of worship because of our sinless Savior who offered himself on the cross, who, who in the midst of my rebellion against God, has responded to me with love and has offered me grace through his own death. It can lead us, it should lead us to a place of worship based on who God is, what he has done in our lives. And man, that, that in and of itself is a miracle that God responds to me, that he responds to any of us in our sin with love and with grace and with mercy. And, and you know, I, when I think about what it would be like if I were in God's position, I am not sure I would have responded as God did. And I realize I'm not God and I'm not even trying to make that comparison, but, but when it comes to how I would respond, man, I don't know that grace and mercy is, uh, is what I would be showing. And, and in fact, the other day, the other day at our house, Melanie was up on the top of the card table at our house. She knows she's not supposed to be up there. We've told her that. It, it is not designed to support that kind of weight. Uh, but she got up there, and wouldn't you know it, she fell off, and, and uh, she was in some pain due to that fall. Nothing serious, but when you're four and you fall, it hurts, right? And so you cry. And, and Megan, showing herself to be a good picture of God's grace, comforted Melanie and, and sought to remove her pain. What was my response? I don't remember my exact words, but it was pretty much, well, maybe now she'll learn her lesson not to get up there again. Just a picture of grace and mercy, aren't I? All right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, God has every right to look at us in our sin and tell us, well, maybe now you'll learn your lesson. You're getting what you deserve. You're just gonna have to deal with the consequences of that choice that you made. He's got every right to do that. Yet, in love, he's chosen to respond with grace and mercy. I show that I'm definitely not always <laughs> the picture of that, but God is that. And he doesn't just seek to comfort us. He takes our pain upon himself in order to restore us. I mean, that, that is even more incredible when you think about it. So, yes, we're sinners. There's no question Yes, our sin against God is a serious thing. But we praise God that the other man, the other man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who defeated sin on the cross, offers himself to us as our Savior. He, he responds to us with grace and mercy. That's why we can sit here this morning. It's, it's why we worship him, even in the midst of being sinners ourselves, we worship him because we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are restored. There's so many things that he does within us.
We praise God for that. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's give God thanks in prayer and then let's continue to do that through our closing songs this morning. God, there's, uh, we have no defense. God, we're, we are corrupt, we are sinful. Uh, there's just no way around it. We can, we can deny it, we can try to, to hide it, we can try to downplay it. But that's who we are, God. We are born as corrupt people. We sin in our lives. We, we commit acts, thoughts. We say things that are an affront to who you are. And so we, we humbly come to you. We, we repent of that. We, we seek forgiveness for that, God. And we are so thankful that you offer that forgiveness to us. We know that it is our only hope. And God, that's that's why we worship you. That is why we worship you. We thank you that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. And in my prayer for myself and for all of us here is that, that we would live in that that we would live as people who've been shown that grace and that mercy. And, and, and we know that until we, are, uh, until we experience our glorification in heaven, that, that we will continue to stumble, we will continue to fall. But God, would you always be drawing us back to yourself? Would you, would you respond to us with continual grace and mercy? May we not take sin lightly in our lives. And God, this message of hope, may it exude from us. May people in our lives who don't have that hope see it and and want it and desire it and ask us about it. Help us to live in such a way that that is just evident in all that we do and say. God, we thank you this morning. We give you praise. You are our Savior. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.